man wakes up, his eyes open. He can see the pale sun coming through the hole of the cave in which he lives. He can see and hear the drips from the ceiling, the crack in the cave of the leftovers of the morning dew just drip, drip, drip onto the floor. He lifts his head off his stone pillow and he plants his feet on the cold slab floor. It's smooth. He's not the first person who's lived in this cave. This, is, this has been a home for many nomads and travelers over many years. But this is the man's home. It's not much to look at. Actually, it's quite small. It's low. The ceiling is low, but the walls are smooth. He's lucky to have some straw for a bed and a tattered sail for a sheet. He has a makeshift stool that doubles as a, as a, sit, a spot to sit, a place to write, to ponder, to put his stuff. But he doesn't actually have many possessions. He's got one kind of cracked, old, faded leather satchel filled with some scraggled-up parchment papers with some words that he's jotted out and a quill pen and an empty jar that used to have ink, but no more. As a man looks around, he can see that, that pale morning light coming through the window the hole in, in the wall, and his feet are, are scuffling around, and, and he knows that what he's looking for isn't there. There's not really a crumb to be found in this, in this house, in this home, and his belly rumbles with hunger. Home. That's a weird and kind of misplaced description of this man's house of his cave dwelling. Home is actually miles and miles and miles away across a treacherous sea to the city where all of his friends and family and kin and brothers and sisters live. He has a large, enormously large extended family, not by blood, but by belief, by promise. And the people that he left, he aches for, he longs for, he knows that they're facing dangers and troubles and trials, but he can't do anything to help them at this point. This man was sent to this place, this cave, on this island, because he was causing problems. Now, to look at him, you'd say, how on earth is that possible? Because this man is frail and old and weak, and his hands are wrinkled with advanced years and time, and a beard rolls off his face that's bleach white, and his eyes... Are, are creased with worry. He's not a threat. The man has never raised a fist to resist or a sword to strike. The problem with this man is what he believes or doesn't believe. The problem with this man is what he professes or what he doesn't profess. The local magistrate of the of 
the local region had a problem with this guy. He said, I, I don't know what to do with him. This guy is much beloved by his community. This guy is going around and doing things that you just don't do in Rome. He's talking about stuff that just doesn't make sense, like a, a risen Christ, a dead man come back to life, calling your, your brothers and sisters your family when they're not at all related to you or speak the same language as you or look the same as you. This man is actually an atheist. He doesn't, he doesn't vow or believe or pray to the gods. He believes in this one guy named Jesus. And he's a Jesus follower of this thing they call the way. And this ecclesia they call the gathering of these people of the way. This is culture-shaking stuff. And, and the local magistrate said, he's too popular to execute. Can't kill him. He's not really a threat because he's old and weak. You can't banish him outright. It might cause a stir. Ah, the magistrate says, I know where we can place him. We can take him to that little island called Patmos. It's too hilly and cliffy and dangerous for him to escape from, and it's too hilly and cliffy and dangerous for him to be retrieved from. Put him there. Let him wander. Let him forage. There's a port town. He can get supplies, but it's a soft exile. Loose tide. Some would even say a bad vacation. What do we do with this man named John? We send him to Patmos. John. Old, tired, worried, afraid, courageous, faithful. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He looks around his makeshift home and he does what he did every single day. Time to find some food. And he gets up. And he walks across that stone floor and he greets the outside salty air of the Aegean Sea. The sun now climbing over the horizon and it's kind of warming the day. He follows the path, the well-worn path of many people's feet before that twists and winds around the craggly rocks and shrubs of this volcanic mountain island. The island has such a rich history in John's day. People believe that, that the gods actually raised it up out of the sea. And there are shrines of this island that John has seen, and he sees every time he goes to the village. And he knows what he's going to find as he gets there, but he makes his way anyway, over the hill, through the valley, towards the port town. And as he comes to the port town, he can see this small little outcropping village kind of nestled on the coast. There's a dozen or so huts and lean-to seaside shanties and a, and a small market and the shrine to the goddess. And as he comes into the village, he's greeted. This is not his first visit to the village. John, good morning, a villager says. Good morning. Same as yesterday, John. 
If it pleases you, John says. And the villager takes a half a loaf of day-old bread and he hands it to John. And he says, oh, you can have these too, John. John reaches his hands out and he receives some very overripe fruit and a small flask of wine. Gratitude, John says, gratitude. Oh, don't worry about it. Are you going to make an offering today, John? The villager says, pointing to the shrine of the goddess, and John says, unfortunately, no. And the villager has a little chuckle, and John takes his food, and he walks around the village, and he's searching for people that he doesn't know he's looking for. By this time, John had spent weeks and months on this island, and he knew the villagers, and they knew him as a kind, warm, caring, empathic man. A man who had weird beliefs about a weird God, but someone who lived his life differently. But it was the Lord's Day. It was Sunday. It was the morning. And there weren't very many people out and about. John sat and he nibbled and he ate. And as he was refreshed and his belly half full, he decided that it's time to go to his Sunday spot where he reflected and prayed. So he got up and he wandered out of the village. And as he was leaving, the same villager came to him and says, Oh, by the way, John, something came in today, or, or actually yesterday, on yesterday's ship. John says, Oh? Yeah, there, there's a, a, a satchel for you. It came in on the other merchant ships and it was meant for you. It must have come from one of your city friends. He reaches out and he shows John a new roll, leather bound, tied together with a rope handle. Scrolls, John said. Fresh scrolls. Oh, and this, the villager hands him, a new jar of ink. John says, I, I don't have any coin for you. I don't have any money to pay. The villager says, don't worry about it. It's been taken care of. Just go. With the scroll around his neck and the ink in his hand, John makes his way down another path. Not the path back to his cave, a path to a different spot. A path that is more treacherous and less worn. A path that John had made with his own feet his own toes and heels bleeding over these jaggedy stones. And he has found this careful path down to one of the lone beaches on this island. And he makes his way slowly. For the wrong foot, he would slide. The wrong step, he could cut. And as he's making his way down, he can hear the now cresting waves breaking over the sandy shore. And it gets louder and louder. And he can smell the salt air. And the sun is a quarter up high in the sky. And he can feel the warmth. And he feels nurtured for as much as the loneliness and the pain and the worry of his position. Being in this soft, banished, exiled state, this island is beautiful. His feet touch the sand and he walks towards his favorite tree. 
It's the Lord's day. He finds his favorite rock and he sits. And he watches the waves lap onto shore. And he can't help but remember his time back in Galilee. All the times he's on, this, on the lake with Peter and Andrew and, and James and Jesus. Those very first days when he was just a very young man called out by that same rabbi to follow him. And all of the things that he saw from that point on, the miracles, the healings, the feedings, the walking across the water, the raised death to life miracles. He can remember so vividly the pain and the torment of watching his friend be executed. And the shock and the disbelief of that same person standing in front of him alive, nail-marked hands, wound in his side, resurrected. If John had only known that that was just the beginning of his journey. For the years that followed, John had spent so many years planting churches, spreading this message about this risen Messiah. And as he sits on the rock, he's just flooded with feelings, memories, people's faces, names, places. Fear creeps in. He's on this island because there's a storm brewing in Rome. He can sense it. John's intuition, he realizes that he is the first fruits of what's probably to come. All of his friends, most of them are dead. Peter, James, Andrew, Thomas, they've all been executed in some way or another. And he can't help but remember the sitting on the beach with Jesus and Peter when Jesus actually said to Peter, what's it to you what I do with John? He's humbled but afraid. Every disciple had been long executed, and yet John still remains, and he knows in his heart, the trouble is coming for his church, for his people, for Christ's bride. But it's the Lord's day. He turns around and he leans against the rock and he grounds himself in the very same prayer that Jesus would taught him oh so long ago. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he pauses and he sits and he waits and in the spirit out of nowhere suddenly the sound of a mighty roaring thunderous trumpet blasts from behind him and John can see with his eyes closed the light bursting through every part of his body across the beach and a warm rushing wind picks up and pushes him over. And it happens so quickly, John has no idea what to make sense of it. It's as if the sun has exploded itself. And through the light and the sound, John turns around and he sees and he hears this voice and sees it face to face. Write it in a book. 
what you see. Send it to the seven churches. And through this extraordinary event, John opens and he can see through squinted eyes a gold menorah with seven branches. And at the center of it was the Son of Man in a robe and a gold breastplate, hair blizzard of white, eyes pouring fire blaze, both feet furnaced fire bronze. His voice was a cataract, right hand holding the seven stars, his mouth a sharp biting sword, his face a peregrine sun. John saw this and fainted dead at his feet. But this man, his right hand pulled John up and his voice, calm, steady, loving, strong, said, don't fear. I am first. I am last. I'm alive. I died, but I came to life. And my life is now forever. John looks up and he can see. This is not an angel. This is not a figment of imagination. This is not some mystical something of his mind. This is Jesus. Jesus holds up his hand and he says, you see these things, these keys in my hand. Big, heavy, metal keys. You see them. They open and lock death's doors. They open and lock hell's gates. Now, John, write down everything you see, things that are, and the things that are about to be. The book of Revelation the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus is all about Jesus. It's an unveiling of Jesus. That's what revelation means. The unveiling of Jesus. And in this narrative, in this story, this, this, this narrative that John is telling us, it begins with Jesus, not the crucified Jesus, not even the resurrected Jesus. It is the divinity, the divine, the complete, whole, God in the flesh, full-gloried Jesus, fully man, fully God, in all of its glory. John can't comprehend what he sees when he beholds this version of Jesus. He knew Jesus the man. He probably knew Jesus, the carpenter. He knew Jesus, the early rabbi. He knew Jesus as teacher, healer. He knew Jesus as miracle worker. He knew Jesus as crucified man. He knew Jesus as resurrected man. As if that wasn't overwhelming enough, now the full embodied God in the flesh is standing before him, holding the keys to death. The one who can open and close death's door. 
And he says to John, write down what you see. The things that have happened and the things that are going to happen. And if we're not careful, and if we don't let this really sink, we'll miss the the simplicity of it. Jesus has already won. He's already victor. He's already champion, triumph. He is the beginning and the end. He is the eternal now. The story, the unveiling of Jesus is all about Jesus. His love, his compassion, his justice, his mercy, how he will make everything right, how he is making everything right, how he has made everything right. And as we throw ourselves into this wild narrative, Jesus says to John, as he says to us, don't be afraid. Resist the dragon. Trust Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we can start this uh, reflective worshipful service today with your story, with your narrative, your narrative of completion, of wholeness, that you are the eternal now, that you hold the keys to death, you hold the keys to life, you offer that life to us, And that you assure us that we do not need to be afraid. That we can trust you. So Jesus, may we be absorbed as John was with the the radiant light of of your love. May we feel that be absorbed by your love and your grace and your mercy this morning. And later on as we take communion, may you prepare our hearts to feel and enter into and know your story of love and mercy. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.